Jingophilia. Well, it's a soir for a change. It will all be made clear. For this is the meaning of life. C'est la science de la vie. This is the meaning of life. Hello, fellow Anglophiles, and welcome to the season finale Sob. of Anglophilia. I'm Stephanie Callis. And I'm Kaylee McMahon, and today we are going to be discussing Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, their final film together. Such a eerily sort of apt title for a finale episode of something, oh, right? absolutely. It's a very bittersweet one. Just, let's heap meaning on all of this. <laughs> yeah. No, they, they go deep in their last film, and I expect that we will too in discussing it. So let's start with a quickish history lesson. After Life of Brian premiered in 1979, the Python's business manager came to them and said, hey, if you come out with another movie, you'll never have to work again in your lives. They started writing the movie, before they really even knew what the movie was going to be about. And a lot of it was written sort of separately in the Flying Circus style, which resulted in a disjointed screenplay that wasn't a story. It was a collection of sketches. But unlike with Holy Grail, there wasn't really a theme uniting any of the scenes. It was just more of a mess. So after months and months of writing on and off, they said, fuck it. Let's do what we did with Life of Brian and take a work holiday. So they headed to Jamaica, where John Cleese actually kind of suggested they scrap the whole thing because it wasn't working. And then Terry Jones put the sketches they had written in an order that kind of made a semblance of sense. And he goes, hey, we have 70 good minutes. We need to write 20 more good minutes. And then he suggested that the movie... In, in this order he put it in, could be like a person's life story. And then someone else was like, well, this could be anyone's life story. And then Eric Idle suggested the title, The Meaning of Life. And this conversation really got them back on track. And the movie premiered in 1983, written by all of the Pythons and directed by Terry Jones. So the big takeaway for me in this one is to never fucking give up, no matter how tired and absolutely freaking fed up of something I am. Oh, is there no end to what the Pythons teach us? Any initial nostalgic feelings that came up for you right away as you were watching this? Well, you know, I think I had said in the last episode, I'm looking forward to seeing this because I don't think I remember it that well. It turns out I remembered, I think, everything about this movie. I've watched this a lot, but strangely, not since I was way too young to appreciate it. It's a movie that I often forget how much I love it, but a lot of the strongest stuff that Python ever did is in here. I just love it so much, and I loved it more this last week when I watched it than I ever had as a child when I got, like, maybe a third of what they were talking about. Yeah! It's a strange one for me as well. I've not seen the whole thing start to finish as many times as you have, But that one thing that I watched over and over as a really small kid was Mr. Creosote. And I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that more. But something I'm going to bring up now to warn everyone is that watching this movie just made me so emotional. And I was having all of these epiphanies about what Python has sort of secretly meant to me my entire life. And I feel like it's taken going back and doing this utter crash course in all of it that's really sort of helped that all click for me. And watching the Mr. Creosote sketch Hmm. brought me to this cheerful, tearful, (laughs) just 
ecstatic sort of weird feeling and I'm that's amazing. I don't know I, I kind of feel like it's my last day of school or something I, I feel like it's graduation and I'm seeing everything playing back in my head oh, yeah it's been such a crazy summer of just living in this weird space with these people and just spending so much time with all of them yeah and I know that there were moments early on where I was kind of like I'm watching entirely too much flying circus I feel like I'm numbing myself never, never and now I'm That's going <laughs> oh well now that the work is done I'm gonna go back and watch that again and just relax oh absolutely maybe I'll watch three at a time instead of 13 <laughs> but yes. I just feel like I'm appreciating appreciating everything that I've gotten to see over the last months and um i'm stoked oh same here i said in our first episode that monty python is one of the best things in life and this whole six episodes that we've done on it really has hammered that home it reinforced my my firm belief in okay that. i'm glad that we're on the same page with that because this would be a really fucking awful episode if one of us were completely burnt out and the other was really enthusiastic i don't like it no yeah fuck that <laughs> all right well shall we dive in let's dive right in so before the proper feature film there is the short feature film the crimson permanent assurance this was the brainchild of terry gilliam it was originally supposed to be part of the proper film it was going to be a five to six minute long animation sequence and then he had already started to direct live action films at this point and was realizing that his passion and interest no longer lay in animation so he wanted to make it a live action sequence but because that took up more space it just kind of grew and grew until it no longer made sense in the middle of the film where it originally was so they had the idea to make it a separate little featurette play it before the film and then there's that lovely tie-in later where it quote attacks the feature film that was great the hilarity of the juxtaposition of pirates pirates represent to me just the epitome of childlike imagination and daring boyhood adventure blah 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 and then meanwhile accountancy is like the exact opposite end of that spectrum it's so boring and again it goes back to what we said about how monty python does make fun of accountants a lot and that whole profession they do and also i have to say that i think that they probably hold the record for most businessmen jumping or falling out of windows out of any other entertainers. oh yeah well i've finally been catching up on the documentary that i know that you've mentioned a, a few times but they talked a good deal about how a lot of their dads their parents were sending them off to these incredible colleges and expecting them to come back lawyers and businessmen etc and they were rebelling against that by being these comedians and their comedy really reflects that and so it's kind of awesome how here it is 1983 mm -hmm. they're all grown-ass men at this point, <laughs> point and they're still making the same jokes about the corporate world that they were making in the flying circus days when they were experimenting with everything and you know young rebellious comedians so it's cool that they never lost that. Yeah, I watched this movie with my sister this week uh, and her boyfriend. And she said, I always found this so boring when I was a kid. And you know, if when you're a kid and your attention span is kind of short. And also, I have to really just drive home once again that Jayma and I were very, very young when we first saw this. This was definitely the first Python movie that we saw. I was probably nine, which means that Jayma was probably six. There's so much stuff that flew over our heads that was wildly inappropriate. But again, it wouldn't change a fucking thing. Thanks, mom and dad. Right. But not in the least the the corporate world. Yeah, yeah. That was completely lost on me. But when I watched it this time, I really loved it. It's very charming and kind of touching to see all of these really old actors all of whom must be dead by now, which is very sad. But it's really sweet. Like, old, little old men are very cute. And uh, not in the way that you think, Stephanie, but, you know. Okay, hey <laughs> now. I'm sorry. First of all, I went back and watched A Fish Called Wanda and did not fall in love with John Cleese. I want to mention that okay. right here. Wasn't old enough for you. Bro, 
bro. <laughs> I don't know where you're getting this. I don't know where I, you're getting I can, this. I can. Billy Bob Thornton is for sure the oldest dude I'm attracted to, but he's <laughs> he ain't even 70. Anyway, I'm sorry for that unwarranted personal attack. But um. No, I, I'm laughing. But I did want to follow up on the fish called Wanda situation. <laughs> I did not fall in love oh, with yes. John Cleese. But even if I had, he was only like 49 years old. So it's not, st- still not go. exactly the Crimson Permanent assurance. <laughs> But yeah, there there is something really hilarious and wonderful about seeing these really ancient elderly actors get to be like little kids again. Yeah, and what you said about pirates being a, the ultimate childlike sort of thing, the revolution takes place at the accounting firm because one of their friends gets sacked. Mm-hmm. And then everyone attacks the oppressive new corporate management. And, you know, having worked in an office where friends have been sacked, it's what you want to do. Oh, yeah. But you don't, and you don't even say anything. But all you want to do is do the childish thing, which is, like, tie everybody up and throw them out a fucking window and then set sail. Yeah. It's also just such a fun and refreshing anti-capitalist fantasy casting off the shackles of this cage that we've all sort of made for ourselves or, you know, agreed to stay in. I found it a little bit depressing as someone with a very boring day job that does revolve around money in some way. I mean, I, I'm treated very well. I like my coworkers. It's not a terrible prison, but it does still make me sad that, like, why can't I go off and be a pirate? Why can't I have play fun make-believe games with my friends all day? Why am I... You know, nose to the grindstone like 99% of the world. Oh, well. Oh, God. The high seas of international finance. Little phrases like that from the narrator. Sailing the wide accountancy. (laughs) That was where my spirits really perked up when I was a kid. I always loved that song. And then it's got a very Python-esque abrupt ending where they sail off the edge of the earth because the earth is in fact flat. (laughs) Okay, the end. (laughs) Excellent. So then we begin the film proper where we have... All of their faces on fish in a I tank. love those fish. Oh my <laughs> I love lord. Those fucking fish. I love those fucking fish. Uh, Howard's, hey, look, being, Howard's eaten. being eaten. Just they're so matter of fact. It's so wonderful. I know. It makes you think, doesn't it? It's um you know, as you said before, the theme was sort of arrived at late in the process. They went through a number of different ideas. One of them was Monty Python's World War Three. you know, before they finally settled on the meaning of life. It's a very ambitious subject to tackle, and I think that even if they sort of accidentally came upon it, they do a pretty good job of it. And uh, it, this movie does make you think. I don't want to jump ahead too much, but I kind of like how they pare down what the meaning is, and it gets simpler and simpler, and we get to that Eric Idle monologue in front of his his family home where he was born. I'm glad that you bring up guest on the French waiter because next we have uh, after the little intro with the fish in the tank, we have the fantastic opening song and beautiful animation. And um <laughs> I really want to know what it is you have to say. Well, I took a sip of soda as Kaylee was speaking and then as she was, you know, talking about the opening number, I started laughing because I just imagined Eric Idle's random ass fucking French accent singing about the meaning of life. Well, so my my question is, I never thought about it until I watched it this week, but do you think that it's supposed to be the same character singing it? Because I always sort of vaguely wondered, like, why does he have a French accent? But, you know, the thing that we're referring to that comes later on, the, the French waiter who has his little thing about the meaning of life, that was originally supposed to end the film. And so it might have made sense as bookends to have this philosophical French dude singing the opening and then closing it out. Do you think that that was intentional? Oh my gosh. A, I think it's a theory that makes more sense than your biggest dickest theory from that Okay. Movie. Well, the biggest dickest theory is not actually that involved. It was just sort of a, oh, hey, I wonder <laughs> if. I wouldn't call it my theory. Yes. 
especially since I haven't thought about it since. But yeah, if that was the original ending, then definitely. In fact, I really like the idea of the movie ending there. You know, I understand that Terry Gilliam was sick of doing animation at the time. And I do like the little title sequences that introduce the, the different segments, like part one, the miracle of birth, blah, blah, blah. But since this is the movie that comes closest to their flying circus kind of style and tone, I really did miss his animations. And I was so happy for the two or three times that we see little bits of them. And this opening is so good. Yeah. And uh, another another very well written song. In this life, what is our fate? Is there heaven and hell? Do we reincarnate? Is mankind evolving? Or is it tonight? Here's the meaning of life. The miracle of birth was the other one that I kind of remembered the very most from oh interesting from childhood which is it's a really kind of frustrating anxiety inducing little segment oh yeah giving birth I I'm more afraid of that than I am of death not least because death is also a possibility so it's like kill two births with oh, one stone God. but it's a it's a horrifying prospect no matter how you slice it and yeah, no matter how you slice it, eh? <laughs> yeah, because they're gonna slice open your butthole. The way that they paint the sort of hospital bureaucracy. This is very funny and a really accurate portrayal of the way that hospitals seem to work, where the patient is sort of an afterthought, and it's all about the technology and the machines and how expensive it is, and the hospital administration and all of these bureaucratic elements that make no fucking sense, and the sterilization and the complete inhumanness of it. After the woman gives birth. They say, measure it and isolate it. And it gets put in that little... The incubator? Yeah. So I bought all three of these movies on DVD. And this was the only one to arrive before we recorded our episode about it. So I watched this with commentary. And Terry Jones said that the birth of his daughter, Sally, was very much like this. I mean, he didn't write this scene. Uh, The scene was written by John Cleese and Graham Chapman, who... We somehow haven't mentioned yet this season, probably because most people tuning in already know this, but it bears repeating that in addition to being a comedic icon, Graham Chapman was also a fully qualified doctor. So like, you know, while he was starring as the title role in Life of Brian, he was also serving as the set medic. So uh, so this sketch was based on his own experiences and observations in working in hospitals like this. Oh. Treating the patient like they're not really necessary. Oh, yeah. I, the machine that goes bing. You see, that means your baby still is still alive. alive. Yes. That gave me the creeps. Oh, yeah. And the administrator coming in. And what are you doing this morning? It's a birth. Ah, what sort of thing is that? Well, that's when we take a new baby out of a lady's tummy. Wonderful what we can do nowadays. Ah, I see you have the machine that goes bing. This is my favorite. You see, we lease this back from the company we sold it to, and that way it comes under the monthly current budget and not the capital account. Another great thing that is simultaneously very dated and also very timely and ahead of its time is the fact that if you want to learn any more about the birth, it's available on VHS, Betamax, and Super 8. And the technology has changed, but you could easily just update that with, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever. That's exactly... We're not really living our lives in a present and mindful way. We're, we're just... Everything is made for consumption after the fact, and everyone's looking at life through a camera lens. They really tapped into something that would be perhaps even more relevant 30 years later. So then after the miracle of birth, we have the miracle of birth, the third world. Yorkshire. I just wrote the note, 
fucking perfection. This, I think, is one of my favorite Python things ever. The baby, though, just sliding out of Terry Jones oh. while she's doing oh, it's dishes wonderful. or whatever. And it's just, she glances yes. at it. Get that, would you, Deirdre? I love that. I've got something to tell the whole family. Oh, quick, go and get the others in, Gordon. The mill's closed. There's no more work. We're destitute. Come in, my little loves. I've got no option but to sell you all for scientific experiments. No, no, that's the way it is, my loves. Blame the Catholic Church for not letting me wear one of those little rubber things. Oh, they've done some wonderful things in their time. They've preserved the might and majesty, even mystery of the Church of Rome. And the sanctity of the sacraments, the indivisible oneness of the Trinity. But if they let me wear one of those little rubber things on the end of my cock, we won't be in the mess we are now. It's a depressing thought that there are people who have more kids than they can take care of, but I feel like when you say that, it's construed as a very cruel thing to say. And I'm not suggesting that we start forcing people to ration or anything like that, but I also feel like... I don't know. I think China's gone to something. <laughs> that definitely comes to mind, which is why I said, and I'm not suggesting we do that, but... I am. I kind of feel like the innocent suggestion of, oh, well, maybe you could try not to have any more children. I feel like that's a mean thing to say to well, people or a conservative thing to say to people. Well, I don't... The word conservative has been hijacked by people who are completely fucking crazy and evil, but I think that in terms of... If you think about the sustainability of the world, and this is, you know, this is an issue that is touched on in a number of sketches in this movie, it's irresponsible to have that many yeah. kids. Even if these people were wealthy, even if they were billionaires, it's still irresponsible to have, to, to make the population increase so much. It's the most selfish and unnecessary thing that you can do. I understand the impulse to have kids, but like, they're really, I think that there should be a cap on how many you should be able to have. It's just not, mm. like, I just I just think that the barriers to parenthood should be at least as strict, if not infinitely stricter, than the barriers to contraception. You should have to jump through at least as many hoops to have children as you do to have an abortion or even just get birth control. Or to adopt. I mean, oh, the things yeah. that couples have to go through in order to oh. prove that they're going to be worthy of adopting children. It's like, it's so you know, up. people come and inspect your house if you want to adopt a child. Yeah. But if you are lucky enough that it happened organically, orgasmically, <laughs> no one says shit. People say congratulations, but there's no, oh, well, is this really what's best for both of you oh. and, and this child and the planet? Yeah, it's, it's no insane. One says shit. That just brings it back to how he's going to have to sell them all for medical experiments. You know, the reason being that it is a greater sin to use any sort of contraceptive than it is to harm children that you bring into the world. And it just, it, I wish that this song weren't still so relevant. I would love to live to an age where this becomes a museum piece and incredibly dated, but it is eternally fucking relevant because it just jabs right at the heart of the fallacy of the so-called pro-life movement and the idea that pro-life really means, well, what it really means is anti-woman, but what it, it, on the surface it just means pro-birth because the conservatives who are against abortion or birth control or, you know, a woman taking control of, of her reproductive abilities... They don't give a shit about the baby once it's born. Well, something that you touched on that we haven't discussed as much quite yet in talking about this sketch is that they do explicitly say, blame the Catholic Church for not letting me wear one of those little rubber yes, things. Yes, yes. So, so it is condoms, specifically about condoms still... and birth control in the church. Yes. And I remember having a, a debate in like 
high school with a friend of mine who was Catholic and it was about, you know, woman's right to choose. And she said, you know, even if it's an accident or you didn't want the child, as soon as it implants in your body, it's a blessing. And I remember thinking like, this is a turning point in our friendship because I don't believe that. And I don't believe it's a blessing because I don't believe in God. And I don't know how we can continue to be friends. I kept it all to myself, but it turned out to be true. That really kind of was one of the last times I hung out with her one-on-one in my life. And I mean, it was sad, but I kind of thought, all right, this is how some childhood friendships end yeah. is is with like major, major debates like this one. Yeah, yeah. And it was that fucking no. Catholicism. Anyway. The idea that uh. sexual pleasure for its own sake, w- without a procreative side effect, the idea that that is a greater sin than causing actual harm to already living people it's it's the most ridiculous idea i think that that has still persisted into the modern world yeah like there are a lot of other ridiculous ideas that like oh left-handed people are the devil that have fortunately died out but this is one that i still i can't believe people are still making this argument i know i should have evolved past this i don't know i've always kind of felt like one of the biggest biblical loopholes is that god created adam in his own image Thus implying Mm -hmm. that God is a flawed, horny, you know, irritable, like, human dude, right? You know what I mean? That's always been my question is like, oh, in your own image, eh? So you're as fucked up as I am? Who the fuck are you to judge then? (laughs) Well, fuck you. party. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck off. (laughs) But but anyway, so so then we get into the song. You see, we believe, well, let me put it like this. There are Jews in the world, there are Buddhists, there are Hindus and Mormons, and then there are those that follow Mohammed's but I've never been one of them. I'm a Roman Catholic and have been since before I was born. And the one thing they say about Catholics is They'll take you as soon as you're warm You don't have to be a six-footer You don't have to have a great brain You don't have to have any clothes on You're a Catholic the moment Dad came Because every sperm is sacred Every sperm is great If a sperm is wasted God gets quite irate Every sperm is sacred It's hard to say what's my favorite Python song. I have a very consistent, firm top three, which is Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, Every Sperm is Sacred, and the Galaxy song. And they're always kind of fighting for the top spot. And 
God, this is, I mean, in terms of production numbers, this is, I think, the best thing that they ever did. It's so well staged, so well conceived, no <laughs> pun intended. The costumes and the kids, they look like, they, I mean, obviously they have parents, but they look like such perfect musical orphans. Like they walked straight out of Oliver or Annie. You know, this was a movie, I forget exactly what the budget for it was. It was something ridiculous, like maybe $8 million, I want to say. It looks But if expensive. you compare it to Holy yeah. Grail, where they were, you know, everything was done so by the seat of their pants it's interesting because a bigger budget doesn't always necessarily serve comedy sometimes we had talked about the charm of the low budget and how the the necessity of having to use coconuts instead of actual horses is such a perfect little touch that makes it better that they didn't have a, a crazy lavish budget that would allow them all of the things that their imagination desired is there something wonderful about having to bridge the gap between what you want and what you can afford that's where a lot of creativity comes from but this i think is one example uh, the other example being Christmas in Heaven, where their big budget actually serves them very well. Christmas in Heaven uh, is pretty cool. In Holy Grail, both of the Terrys were co-directing, and so that caused a lot of friction because they were sort of saying opposite things to the actors and, and had sort of different concerns. And Terry Gilliam is the more visual of the two, obviously. And I remember hearing John Cleese talking about this one shot, this one take that he and Eric Idle had done when it was Lancelot and the squire and message for you, sir, and how they felt really good about the take. They were really firing on all cylinders comedically and the timing was really excellent. And they said, oh, well, that was great. And then Terry Gilliam said, well, we've got to go again because there wasn't enough smoke. And then John Cleese just said, will the smoke make it funnier? And the answer to that is almost universally no. More smoke won't make it funnier. And similarly, more blood and guts and viscera will not necessarily make it funnier. The gross-out gags in this are, you know, better funded and therefore more graphic and appalling and shocking even to this day than anything else that they had done thus far. And that doesn't always make it funnier, but in this case, like, this outstanding production number, it's not just that it's a lot more money, but that it's really well used. And like I said, it has echoes of Oliver, and it made me immediately think of Annie. And then I looked it up, and apparently it was the same choreographer for, for both of those, so that makes sense. Aww. Yeah, the woman, Arlene Phillips, was the choreographer for this movie, and she also choreographed Annie, which was just the year before. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that makes sense as to why this is making me think so much of, of that. Oh, that's so great. I have oh to say, gosh. I'm also just so jealous of any kid who got to be in this scene. I was... They've all got to be, like, in their 40s now. What bragging rights for I life? Was I was in every too. sperm is sacred, bitch. Like, fuck? I would I would have killed to be one of those little kids what the hell? dancing around and doing flips, bursting out of cabinets. It's fucking excellent. I know. What the hell? But I love that we've got the judgmental Protestants oh, yes. across the road. That, that scene is so... Yes. This is another scene that I found funnier this time than I ever did when I was a oh, kid. Oh, samesies. I love Eric Idle as the repressed horny housewife. Oh, yes, Eric. Oh, yeah. We've, we've so got two good. children. We've had intercourse twice. <laughs> Yeah, and he's just and and he's just the perfect like completely stuffy like asexual person. Oh yeah, talking about how he can walk down the street anytime and demand a condom, and she's going, "Oh well, could could you go do that now?" She wants it so bad. Oh my god! But I honestly, my favorite part about this scene that I had never even really noticed when I watched it as a kid is that in the background you still have the children constantly streaming out of the door and sadly marching away to be sold into medical experiments. I actually paused and I counted, and even though there's like a cut, it's it's. It's mostly one shot, and then there's a couple close-ups, but there are 66 children that come out of the door. Oh my goodness. 
it's so good <laughs> it's just one of those things where it's like a, a running joke that just my sister and I were just laughing harder and harder the longer it went on just the endless parade of sad kids trudging off to their doom it's so funny <laughs> <laughs> well that sounds very cruel but hey it, I didn't write it it's it is wish I did it is pretty fucking funny they're being sold for scientific experiments because God has blessed them so much I just loved the two different sides of the condom debate it's like on one side you know can't use these but you know because we're catholic we've got to spread the seed and have all these kids and then the opposite side is i'm allowed to do this but i've been told that sex is dirty and god's watching me so i'm not I'm not going to and that's going to lead to a life of repression and unhappiness oh yeah and that's the thing about these uh, the harm of religious ideas that you know, we, we should have evolved past as a society by this point is that, you know, even like I consciously don't believe in God, but having been raised in a puritanical society, there is still some part of me that thinks that sex is a little bit dirty and shameful and embarrassing. And I don't feel comfortable talking about it openly with people, which, you know, I, I think that that's correct. I don't like it when people just come and be like, I got laid last night in front of the whole office. Like that is inappropriate. Don't don't tell me that. But I don't know, maybe maybe I'm just too much of a prune. I need to loosen up. In front of the office? I don't... The office is a bad example. I don't know. What are, any group of people... I don't need to hear... Well, you and I have had some pretty filthy, humiliating discussions with each other in, in public. Oh, well, on a one-on-one basis, sure, but I don't announce it to the world. Dude, I was at the beach a couple weeks ago with my friend who was visiting who told me that the tortoise fucking sound was like the knights who sang me. No, okay. but we, yes. we, were at, we were at the beach and there was a group behind us of, of youngish people, probably roughly our age, and um, there was a pretty handsy couple. They, they would kiss. They were affectionate. It didn't really bother me, but... There was one point where the girlfriend just had her mouth <laughs> just clamped against one of the man's nipples. I'm glad you said nipples. And there it remained. And I thought, I don't mind hand-holding. I don't mind public kissing. You're sucking a nipple here. What the <laughs> fuck? Speaking of nipple sucking, that kind of brings us perfectly to not quite the next, but one of the next segments that is fan fucking -tastic. oh yes let's let's get there <laughs> the sex ed scene i can't tell you how hard this makes me laugh and how uncomfortable it made me when i was 10 <laughs> it kind of made me uncomfortable watching it in a room now. with my parents and sister it kind of made me uncomfortable now just watching it with myself because there are sickos out there who have sex in front of their kids what okay well ew that you made it weird and real, but, um, <laughs> but I think that this catch is so funny. So first of all, I just, I, I've mentioned that my sister and I were very, very young when we were first exposed to this. And my favorite little biographical tidbit about my family is that we watched this when we were so young that Jema told me that she was afraid that when she did eventually learn sex ed in school, that that's what it was going to be like. And that she was going to have to watch her teachers have sex. Oh my God. Isn't that cute and so fucked up? <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Oh, my goodness. But, you know, John Cleese is the master going through foreplay and talking about it like it's such a dull thing. And all of the, you know, 40-year-old men playing these schoolboys who are all sort of bored and distracted. It's adorable. But, God, he's so funny and making the subject seem so dry. Purpose of foreplay is to cause the vagina to lubricate so that the penis can penetrate more easily. Can we have a window open, please, sir? Yes, Harris, will you? And, of course, to cause the man's penis to erect and ha. Then. Now, 
Did I do vaginal juices last week? Oh, do pay attention, Wadsworth. I know it's Friday after. Oh, watching the football, are you, boy? Right, move over there. I'm warning you. I may decide to set an exam this term. Oh, so just listen. Also, I gotta say, I I kind of wish that foreplay were taught in schools because that is something that uh, boys need to learn at a young age. Maybe not a super young age, but they should know about it. I thought it was very. Maybe this was an accident, but watching it as an adult female, I kind of couldn't help but notice that while they were all able to list examples of what foreplay is, none of them remembered mm-hmm. the purpose. <laughs> yeah, Did- but you know, they were also supposed to be quite No, young. I know, but do you hear what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. yeah there you yeah. go. <laughs> but I do love the taking your clothes off, sir. Yes, and afterwards, putting them on the lower peg, sir. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, God. Did you cringe when he said vaginal juices? You know, American versus British pronunciations of words. Some of them, I prefer their versions. I prefer vaginal to vaginal. Same. Vaginal just sounds so gross and more clinical, whereas vaginal is just like, oh, you can toss it off more easily. (laughs) (laughs) God damn it. (laughs) Good night, everybody. Oh, my goodness. Oh, God. Yes. Well, I cringed. I don't like when anything that's happened is referred to as juices, because I think of fruit juices. I prefer the word fluids. Yes, same. Yeah. Yeah, no, because juices implies something that you're squeezing to let out something that shouldn't be... Yeah, if you think about fruit, it belongs in the fruit, whereas, like, secretions... It's, again, a kind of gross scientific word, but it accurately describes what's going on. Exactly. Juices? Juices. Yeah, that that kind of makes my skin But yeah, when he pulls down, like, the Murphy bed in the classroom, and it's still got, like, really firm, like, wooden bedposts and stuff, and a canopy over it. Oh, it's so good. Sex bed. Oh, that was funny. I learned from the commentary that that was the idea of the production designer. It was originally going to be just like a little bed that they wheeled in from off stage, but instead it was like built into the wall. That's such a genius little bit of design. I love that. Mm-hmm. And then the wife comes in and they're having that boring discussion about, oh, we have to have dinner with this couple, blah, blah, blah. And again, it made me so uncomfortable as a kid, but this time it was funny. Like this is this is probably my favorite non-musical sequence in this. It's so funny. You do, you're making a cringy face. Is it? Is it the vaginal juices that put you off? No, it's it's having sex in front of children. <laughs> <laughs> but they're not really children. Oh, I know. They're Look, forty-year-old men. For whatever reason, maybe because you know it is implied that these are kids, and I know that there are perverts out there who teach their kids about sex by fucking in front of them. Really. Am I just so naive that I've never heard about this? I've just heard anecdotally from. People who knew oh, people God. who were scarred for life and came from these abusive... Uh, oh. You know, so it's... um. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, any any traumatic, horrible pain that can be inflicted on a person, or especially a child, has been by some freak out no, there, of, and that's of, terrible. Of course, but I think that that's the exception, not the rule. No, of course, and I'm, and I'm not... It, you know, when, when these things happen, by the way, when, when I see these things in life that are being made a joke of, but I know yeah. someone that happened to, I'm never at an angry letter-writing stage. Or, or, <laughs> yes, or in, I wish to complain in the strongest possible terms. It's exactly <laughs> what I mean. I understand it's it's a joke, and I I did laugh. I just also cringe yeah. a lot. That's all. I don't know. I I think that that's the funniest scene in the movie. Okay, all right. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I get maybe it's like a, a sort of personality test of that's, what does it say about you. That's I, I would exactly love to see a Buzzfeed quiz right now. That's exa- what does your favorite scene in Meaning of Life say about you? We should we should make and this. And then they have the rugby where the boys are actually played by by boys. 
mm-hmm. because they probably didn't really want to film that in front of little boys. Oh, wait, just speaking of like not wanting to film inappropriate things in front of children, another fun little detail that I learned in the commentary today was that during Every Sperm is Sacred, obviously you have all of these children singing and lip syncing the stuff about Every Sperm is Sacred, but there's the little line of dialogue where Michael Palin says, if I'd been allowed to wear one of those little robot things at the end of my cock, but in life he said sock and then they dubbed it over later. Isn't that sweet but also strangely selective about what they're censoring? Because, like, but, nothing else about oh, it, there's some... you know, disguises what it's about. But I guess if you don't know what sperm is and you're, like, four years old, then well, why not? Also, sperm is not a crude word. It's kind of a gross word, though. Sperm. I mean, it's it's a gross word because it, because sperm is fucking it's gross. Really but they weren't singing all your jizz is sacred. It was every <laughs> sperm is sacred. Oh, all vaginal juices are sacred. <laughs> oh, my God. Let's move oh, on. <laughs> I guess my point is, while yes, it's all a big sex joke, I can understand why they justified that because cock is a swear word and sperm is is not. Even though, theoretically, sperm is grosser than cock. So much grosser. So So much grosser. But anyway, next we have part three, fighting each other. A lot of of fun little anti-war stuff this this segment more than any feels very flying circus to me totally when they're giving the gifts to their commanding officer in the trench they're all giving them the the clocks and the cake and then they all start dying one by one i'm like this if it had been if it had like cheesier studio set lighting and laughter that would i could so easily see this being in the television show oh yeah oh yeah it actually reminds me a little bit of the dirty fork sketch totally the heightening and then the the death I hear that. Yeah, the straight man around whom all of the action is happening and everybody just sort of overreacting and getting angry about these things. I think that John Cleese in both even says like, you bastard, he gets really angry. You bastard. You bastards. Does that bring us to that great Michael Palin performance as the drill uh, first sergeant? First there's the, the little Graham Chapman thing saying, this is why we'll always need an army and may God strike me down if I'm wrong. Boom. And that's that's a perfect little, Mwah. yay. Yeah anti-war sentiments that was good too good on you pythons that that's yeah but that's a very tiny little thing and then yes we have we have the the michael palin this also reminds me of the defense against fresh fruit sketch okay but with michael instead of john in that role just just the way that he is shouting so angrily about these things like learn on the piano (laughs) his delivery just gets more and more exaggerated and cartoonish and overblown and it's really hilarious and yeah it's so true everybody would i mean most people at least would rather be doing other things than going off and risking death yeah i'd rather go be with my family go learn the piano there's a million better things to do than kill each other and I think that this is a very fun and absurd way of exploring that obvious fact. What's the line? Does does one of them say like, well, I'm in the middle of a rather good book. Or yeah, right, off you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then he marches mm-hmm. by himself, right? Yeah. Because there are always going to be people who love this shit that you and I don't at all understand. Like like people, you know, they're military families and very proud people who go enlist and it's in their family and it's what they do and they have the time of their lives. It's it's a world that is completely foreign to me. And next we have the bit about the British officer class with Eric Idle's leg missing and this I think is the most flying circusy one. Totally. I feel like this is the one part of the movie that sort of lags a little bit and doesn't really seem to have 
a point. Like it's it's kind of a nice like refreshing little echo of Flying Circus in a way because it goes off in that random bit where there's the two men dressed as a tiger and they never really explain any of it. The guys in the tiger suits, it's funny, but it's never going to be as funny as when we saw it on Flying Circus with Michael Palin fighting the tiger. Or, or does he fight a lion? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I did like the idea that there's this fancy officer class that has nothing to do with any of the actual fighting. That sort of reminded me a little bit of what Blackadder goes forth would later on do an excellent job of standing yeah. up. Yeah. That was obviously a much more political and, and pointed and sort of clear way of doing it. But this, this touched on, this got a little bit political as well, in addition to being very weird and silly. Speaking of very weird and silly, does that take us to the middle of the film? The middle of the film, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Cram Chapman looks like Gaga. <laughs> How do you feel about Find the Fish? You know, it's, again... This whole segment, from the beginning of the fighting each other segment all the way through the middle of the film, it feels very Flying Circus. And I'm not mad about it, but it also, I don't know, I, I'm of I'm of two minds with it. Because in one way it's like, oh, they haven't really changed or evolved. And in the other way it's like, oh, they haven't really changed or evolved. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because, you know, with, with Holy Grail they proved that they were able to follow a complete story, however loose and sort of amorphous that was. And then with Life of Brian, they tightened it so much and made it into, you know, a polished story with such a clear through line. They didn't even need any animations to link things. And it's like, where do you go from there? Ah, uh, you go back to the beginning. Yeah. And that's also like something in the last image of the film. We'll get to that later. Is Find the Fish introduced by Michael Palin in that... In the drag, yeah, The yeah. show host that shows up in the middle? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He takes us out of the film and announces we're in the middle of the film and then shows us something called Find the Fish, which is... Did you say Graham Chapman looks like Gaga? <laughs> I did. <laughs> that was a really delayed he reaction. He looks good. We've got Graham Chapman in a bizarre, like, corseted drag getup, and Terry Jones with really long cartoonish arms wearing some sort of tuxedo with tails and talking in a funny voice. And it goes on for a while, and part of me is looking at it, and I'm going, yeah, this is right up my alley. And another part of me is like, this is... <laughs> kind of too much and I think you know you you mentioned earlier that if the sketch with them in the trenches and and they're all dying one by one trying to go get utensils to eat the cake yeah you mentioned that if it were slightly lower budget and filmed in front of a live audience it would completely fit in with Flying Circus and I kind of feel like find the fish it's the fact that it clearly has a budget doesn't really do it any favors exactly that's kind of what I was referring to yeah it would be a lot more um I don't want to say the word sweet but I, I think I would have a greater affection for it if it just looked as sophomoric as it fucking is <laughs> yeah I get that I get that <laughs> yeah and that's why I think that like the budget is really best spent in the musical numbers and then in other things yeah it Having more money doesn't necessarily make it better. It does lose a little bit of its scrappy charm. Well, I found a Monty Python reunion clip on YouTube where I think it was only filmed just a couple of years ago. And they, they bring up that sketch and it's kind of funny how, how they're divided on it for the the real reasons that we've just listed. Some people... Oh, who who comes on what side? Oh, well, I think it was John Cleese who first said, Dare, isn't that just a load of rubbish? What were we doing? And, and then I forget who agrees with him, but Eric <laughs> Idle, who adorably is Skyping. He's not actually there. It's just his head on Aww. a TV screen. And he's like, it's three <laughs> in the morning. He comes in and says, you're wrong about that. People love that. Aww. And then they kind of move on. But 
it yeah. makes sense to me why some of them would go, what the fuck were we thinking? And others would go, I don't yeah. know. Turns out it worked. I will say for me, the thing that makes it worth it is the hilarious cut to the fish in the tank. When they say, oh, that was terrific. Yeah. It's such a funny little <laughs> representation matters, guys. Yeah. <laughs> like, Those fish are you know, funny to me every they're time. They're so happy to see something about fish. It's, uh, it's sort of like a perfect punchline that to me justifies the weirdness and randomness of it all. Yeah. So then after the middle of the film, we have part four, middle age. <laughs> we have the American tourist couple, the Hendys. That great shot of Eric Idle polishing Michael Palin's camera on his knees. <laughs> I'd like to polish his camera. Ooh! Ooh. The way he, like, dabs off his mouth for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Eric Idle in this reminds me so much of Dustin Hoffman and Tootsie. Okay. Did you... Did you see that too? No. It's like, because it's around this, I think it's maybe a year later It was when this movie came out. It's the same era of clothing. It's the weird curly wig and the big old glasses and the slightly uncomfortable accent that is not his own accent. It just, he reminded me so much of Dorothy Michaels, but like better because he's not a sex offender. <laughs> anyway. God damn it. Stop you know. being sex offenders because Tootsie's an incredible movie and I wish I could watch I, it. I swear to God, I actually purchased it on iTunes like the week before that shit came out about <laughs> Dustin Hoffman and I felt really bad. I was like, oh, it, it, no, God damn it. You should know better. You were in a movie about how hard it is to be a woman. Fuck you. And fuck you, Louis C.K. And fuck you, anybody who enables his comeback. No pun intended. Oh! Spilling that in my head. I killed my co-host, you guys. <laughs> so anyway, we have this fantastic scene that was originally part of a longer sequence. Have you seen any of the deleted scenes in this? No. So this was, you'll, you'll notice that Carol Cleveland is not featured very heavily in this. That was not always the case. There was a scene right before this where she was a waitress and they ended up cutting it because it was a very it was part of a longer sequence with these tourists at this hotel and keeping the part with the philosophy conversation because it was more on theme with the whole meaning of life thing but i i love that john cleese as the waiter is so funny i love his like gruff american voice and his hair is hilarious and like i just had to wonder you know he he asks them well have you ever wondered why you're here uh, what why we're all here what's the point of it all what's the purpose of being alive and and then they just go nope I just, are there people like that who genuinely don't question things? I mean, that seems impossible to me. There there probably have to be, because otherwise, like, given the state of the world, it's impossible that everybody is a reflective person who wonders how we got here and where we're going. But, but I can't imagine never once questioning what we've been taught, why we're here, what's the big picture. I don't know. Kaylee, people can surprise you with their their shallowness. I mean, clearly, and their apparently, stupidity. some people have sex in front of their kids. <laughs> but I'm learning so much, you guys, dude. I mean, not to always bring it back to this subject, but you know, sometimes I'll say something that I think is purely fair of me to say about the treatment and, and depiction of women, and you know, a mm-hmm. woman will say back to me, "But what can we do?" And it just kind of stops that fucking train dead in its tracks and makes me go all right and I feel like that's got to be the way a a lot of people think whether it's about how I don't know there are black and gay Trump supporters you know there's got to be people who just don't think about bigger issues in in general which I think can also translate to the question of what we're all doing here because ultimately does it matter 
I guess not. Because even if we figure <laughs> I, it out, we're still going to die. I mean, I think we should we should talk about what we think the actual meaning of life is, because this is a pretty good entree. If any subject that we're talking about ever invites that conversation, this is the film. Well, because I think that people, you know, again, r- regardless of what the big issue is, it's really scary to question bad things and the unknown. It's it's very scary to admit I have no idea what I'm doing and I- I'm here on this rock spinning around in space and on top of that my rent is due. You know, th- there are countless things that you can worry about and then on top of it you don't know why you're here, you never asked for this. And yeah. people are treated horribly and there's injustice and violence and, and terrible things and so... Yeah, I can, there are days that go by where I don't think about any of that, and I feel like it'd be perfectly normal for other people to really make a lifelong habit out of it. Yeah. It really wouldn't surprise me if there are people who don't wonder. It just made me think of, um, to to cite the works of another sex offender, is uh, that moment in Annie Hall with, uh, like, you you two seem like you're in a happy relationship. What's your secret? Oh, I'm really shallow and whatever. Like, I forget what the exact quote, but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah. I almost referenced it, but I didn't want to do that so quickly after we denounced Louis C.K. and Dustin Hoffman. Oh, rule of three, man. <laughs> Don't you know anything about comedy? <laughs> well, as, as far as, okay, anyway, there we go. No, yeah. Um, I think maybe it's also because I, I live in a bubble where I mostly see and hear the opinions of friends and Facebook friends who, who think like me and who are just riddled with anxiety in every little choice that they make and the over-analysis to the point of paralysis rhyme that sort of makes it very hard to live everyday life. And and I can't imagine what it would be like to sort of be on autopilot and to just sort of be content to go about your day without ever zooming back. There must be something kind of liberating about it in a way. But also, you know, the, the unexamined life is not worth living. So I think that the fact that there is, I would say there is no inherent meaning in life. It's just sort of a blank slate and you have to create your own meaning. And that is at once a liberating and terrifying idea. I'm someone who really craves structure and instruction. And so I think that in some ways it might be easier if I subscribe to like, oh, a religion that tells me exactly what to do. I can see the appeal in that. But, you know, having been raised without religion, I don't feel that I need that or could ever really truly believe at this point. So every day is sort of an, an attempt to define or search for meaning and to live in alignment with the principles that are still kind of evolving all the time. It's it's interesting and terrifying is what I'm saying. Remind me who said the unexamined life is not worth living? Oh, you had to call me out. I don't fucking remember. Or did you just make that up? <laughs> it's no, it's some I shouldn't I shouldn't have cited it without Hang on, I'm going to See look exactly. It, up. it was probably just like some dude who stood in a room talking with other dudes. Now I just sound like Mrs. Doyle. A load of men. Okay, I knew it was a philosopher. It was Socrates. Oh, yeah, but he was surrounded by young boys who hung on every word he said, and I'm sure exactly. that gave his life all He was all living the life that I dream of. <laughs> you know, I feel like if you're in a room surrounded by young boys who are, like, gonna mm. go ahead and fuck you because you're Socrates and you said so, then, yeah, you can talk all the bullshit you want about these rules of life. Don't knock it till you try to <laughs> I think if someone doesn't want to examine shit, that's not up to Socrates. 
All right. Well, anyway, so funnily enough, we have stumbled upon talking about actual philosophers. They have their little conversation starter menus. They treat the conversation as if it's food that they don't like. Yeah, they would you send care for something back. to talk about? Yes. They both give such good performances as these vapid American tourists that are that are very sweet. The look of genuine concern and confusion on Michael Palin's face when he says, who's Hal David? There's such a sincerity to it. They could play these caricatures in a more nasty fashion, but instead they just are very I don't know there's something kind of down to earth about how how stupid they are yes and I love that they end up talking about everything except philosophy Mm -hmm. I found that really true to life yeah well first of all they enter the lobby that is very strange and space age looking which is called back to later right we see that same lobby a little bit later or just a similar sort of lobby in in heaven yeah yeah and you've got this gorgeous drag queen leading them to the dungeon room, which is Hawaiian food in an actual dungeon. And because I'm terrible, I assumed it was going to be a sex thing because I forgot this movie and where we were going to be going next. And before John Cleese shows up to give them the conversation menus, they really, they stop talking. They have nothing to say to each other, which reminds oh, yeah. you of the theme of, of middle age and this, this marriage yeah. and how you reach a point where you've got nothing to say to each other. That's my nightmare. Yeah. Oh my God. It's totally my nightmare to be married to someone and have nothing to say to them. I've reached that point in relationships where I was dating the guy for like two months. And I was like, how the fuck could I possibly sustain like 40 or 50 years of this shit? It's horrifying. And it does harken back to the lyric in the beginning of the the song. Is life just a game where we make up the rules while we're searching for something to say? And searching for something to say, especially as an anxious introvert, even when I'm just with a friend or a family member, just the pressure of conversation, I go to a very dark, spirally place in my mind when I can't figure out a way to fill the silence. And oh god, to have that in your primary relationship where you're with somebody most of the day or most of your days. Uh, Kaylee, as the person who's about to spend eight nights with you in London, I want you to know that I'm not going to expect you to entertain me with conversation the entire time. But I feel like if we were married, I would feel a lot more pressure. I would just have to drink a lot more. (laughs) that's exactly how it works let's move on exactly how it works so next we have live organ transplants this is again i mean this is the goriest it's kind of amazing to me that a now 35 year old film can have the power to shock me when I've seen so much horrific violence, you know, movie violence in my life. But a liver, that liver just slipping around in his hands. Oh, that's yeah. That's something you don't see in every damn movie. No, it's just, it's really, you know, it, it's upsetting to me now, again, as it, as it was when I was a kid. I mean, but but John Cleese is so funny in this and the, the, when he's talking to Terry Jones in the kitchen and like it seems like he's kind of coming on to her, but he's really just after her liver. That's that's such a great scene. Yeah, and it's a great Terry Jones woman. Just a classic. Oh, just, just oh absolutely. Frump. About the Terry Jones ladies, it happens with Mandy Cohen. It happened with the mom in Yorkshire in Every Sperm is Sacred. Mm-hmm. Just how unimpressed they are by everything happening around them and the way that she's mm-hmm. reacting to, to what's in front of her with just strangers breaking into her house and cutting open her husband and blood spraying everywhere and they're harvesting his organs she's not upset at all and i that is so funny oh yeah uh you do realize uh, he has to be uh well dead by the terms of the car uh before he donates his liver when i told him that 
but he never listens to me. Silly man. And then we have what I think for me is the highlight of the movie. Uh, it's a it's a tight running between this and every sperm, but oh my god, the galaxy song. What a fucking masterpiece. You know, it's weird. I feel like we haven't talked about Eric Idle very much individually in this Python season, which is very strange because he was actually my favorite as a kid. Uh, and I think that a big part of the reason that I loved him so much growing up was, I mean, partly it's because he's adorable and he was actually my first love, pythonically speaking. My crush on him precedes my crush on Michael. But um, but mainly the reason is that he wrote such great songs. Uh, as I've said, he, along with his musical partner, John Dupre, wrote the score to Spam a lot, which is great. And while, you know, the other Pythons have also written some really wonderfully fun songs, like, I mean, you know, Michael and Terry brought us such unforgettable classics as the Lumberjack song and Every Sperm is Sacred, but... You know, I think that Eric Idle's songs tend to have the most staying power because they're the ones with the most substance. And for that reason, I think that I would characterize him as the most philosophical python. I mean, between Always Look on the Bright Side of Life and this, ugh, they're just so meaningful. Whenever life gets you down, Mrs. Brown, and things seem hard or tough, and people are stupid, obnoxious or daft, and you feel that you've had quite enough. Just remember that you're standing on a planet that's evolving and revolving at 900 miles an hour. That's orbiting at 90 miles a second. So it's reckoned a sun that is the source of all our power. The sun and you and me and all the stars that we can see are moving at a million miles a day in an outer spiral arm at 40,000 miles an hour of the galaxy we call the Milky Way. I think about this song pretty frequently when I want to gain a sense of perspective and sort of in the same way as uh, always look on the bright side of life. That's more of a cheerful kind of pick me up song. This is just like a, a sort of quietly contemplative, very lovely, like the, the music is so pretty and it's a very comforting thing. I don't know. It's, it's something that I've known and loved ever since I was very small. And it's something that I can always come back to when, feeling overwhelmed by the the trivia of life and it's, it's helpful to step back and realize oh nothing really matters we're all so incredibly tiny and insignificant in the grand scheme of things and it's it what could be terrifying is ultimately a comforting message to me i got to hear eric idol do this live when i saw him at festival supreme i hate you bitch it was beautiful it was at the santa monica pier and it was a gorgeous oh day oh my god and Jack Black came on and introduced him, which we weren't expecting to see Jack Black until the end of the evening when Tenacious D performed. So to have Jack Black come and introduce Eric Idle, and then Billy Idol came out just as a gag. So that was like, wait, what's happening? And then Eric Idle walks on with his little guitar and you had Jack oh Black, God. Billy Idol, and Eric Idle on the stage together, which was just oh, such a kind of wonderful wow. image. And yeah, he sang the song and um, I had just had cancer <laughs> and uh was told i didn't anymore and was feeling really really happy to be there there at festival supreme and there on the planet and to to see um this old older well okay fine fucking old you know comedian up up there do, doing his thing and to, to sing those words and i thought this is 
this is one of those little moments. This is one of those little moments that, you know, reminds oh, you what yeah. the meaning of life is. Really. That's that's lovely. Okay, I, I take back my I hate you bitch comment because I forgot about the, the timeline of the cancer thing. You know, You're allowed your wonderful life-affirming moments. I don't pull that out a lot, but I've been contemplating using it a bit more. <laughs> I mean, again, if ever there was an episode that merited it, this is the one. Part of me, you know, th- this this song is, like I said, probably the best thing in the movie. And part of me wishes that it looked a little better, that it were sort of more of a big production number in the vein of Every Sperm is Sacred. It would obviously be like, since it's a slower paced and kind of softer song, it wouldn't be like, you know, a big hullabaloo. But visually, it's not as impressive as it is sonically. But then another part of me thinks that the song is wonderful enough that it stands on its own. And as, as cool as it would be to have like a third big production number in this movie or, or accompanied by a really beautiful, epic Terry Gilliam animation, which was originally the intention uh, during the second verse. They shot it just as a temporary thing. But then Terry Gilliam was so busy doing the Crimson Permanent Assurance that he didn't ultimately get around to doing as much animation for this as was the original plan. But there's really something nice about the simplicity of the staging. It lets the song just shine on its own and it lets you focus on grasping these really big ideas and these statistics which are mostly pretty right i looked it up and you know he obviously rounds some things because it's easier to say 12 than like 11.2 you know sometimes scansion has to take precedence over exact scientific accuracy but it's really it's really great you know every sperm is sacred is basically just the same message over and over again so you can have distraction from the lyrics that are that are easy to grasp with all of these visual jokes whereas this it's uh it's such a perfect and small musical number to express such a big idea and and also there's something really sweet and lovely about watching the two of them walk through the stars together yeah it's really sweet. it also kind of helps the button become that much more yeah. powerful because you know the, the house is like fallen apart and then they go out into space and then they come back and eric idol crawls back into the refrigerator and terry jones has great. that line makes you feel so sort of insignificant doesn't it yeah yeah can we have your liver then? Yeah, all right, you talked me into it. This is something I, I talked to my parents after watching this, and they both said that they wish that this were the end of the movie because it is the best and most meaningful thing. But I have to disagree. I think that it would be too much to absorb as the final thing, and I like it as a reprise over the credits because it reminds you of what you already felt and learned from earlier without putting all of the pressure to be like, and here's the meaning of life. You know, it, it's a... I think it's perfect exactly where it is. Yeah, I agree. And next we cut to the very big corporation of America. That was funny. It, which is about to be attacked by the Crimson Permanent Assurance. This is, this is something that is also so profound because it is... I mean, it's very funny and it's wonderful, the tie-in with the short feature from the beginning. But this is a theme that I, I didn't realize until watching this scene, actually, that is recurrent throughout much of Python, which is the distraction from the big picture by daily trivia. And, you know, the, the frustration of being unable to communicate big ideas and getting bogged down in the details, whether it's something like, what's so special about the cheese makers or the coconut swallow conversation? We've come to seek the Holy Grail. And then, ah, where'd you get that coconut? Or, um, I don't know, thinking about Flying Circus, like Arthur Tushed's Jackson, who's a composer who just wants to talk about his work, but they keep asking him about his two sheds. And, you know, it's something that is so true. And that, like we said, we want to live 
these big lives or to, to feel that we have some sort of purpose and meaning and we want to keep our eyes on the big picture and maintain a sense of perspective. But, you know, I get pissed off when people shove me on the subway and I stew about it for like the next 30 minutes before I finally realize like it doesn't fucking matter, Kaylee, let it go. That's a person who has their own life to live like it, you know, or I don't know, there, there's just a million little things that distract us. And the whole thing about how people aren't wearing enough hats and the mindlessness of consumerism and how our whole culture is set up to create, you know, things that people don't want or need and then create that want or need so that people can make more money. And it's just like this this terrible and depressing cycle when you step back and think about it. But we get we get distracted because we think we need more hats. Well, Graham Chapman has that great line that sets up the discussion that's going to take place in that board meeting, which is there's still so much to own. Yes. And it's a great line. And it made me it made me mad. And, you know, we have the joke of is it Michael Palin who's, or, or Eric Idle who's actually trying to talk about the meaning of life and getting distracted? So first, Michael Palin is the one who says, What we've come up with can be reduced to two fundamental concepts. One, people are not wearing enough hats. Two, matter is energy. In the universe, there are many energy fields which we cannot normally perceive. Some energies have a spiritual source which act upon a person's soul. However... This soul does not exist ab initio, as Orthodox Christianity teaches. It has to be brought into existence by a process of guided self-observation. However, this is rarely achieved owing to man's unique ability to be distracted from spiritual matters by everyday trivia. What was that about hats again? And then Eric Idle says, circling back to what you said about getting distracted, has anyone noticed that building before? That's when he looks outside and sees the Crimson Permanent Assurance poised for attack. Yeah, that's what it is. I loved the speech by Michael Palin. And then what was that about hats? That just, yeah, that said so much. It sums up everything that's wrong with our culture. But even if it's not about hats, like on the big corporate fucked up level, yes. But... Don't you also feel like there's just kind of endless shit to do? Oh, yeah. And it's so easy to get distracted. And it's not even um buying hats or, or buying anything. But it's like, well, I have to go to work. I have to buy food. I really, really have to go exchange this thing that I'm going to need. I really should clean my stove. I need a shower. Oh, my God, yeah. I've got to work out. I have laundry. Even without this huge consumer culture, oh, there's yeah. really just like so much that's that's distracting life is sisyphean as fuck you've really got to carve out time for everything and that includes relaxation how fucked up is that yeah and then on top of that you've got people selling you hats and telling you that you need things to make your life complete you better be using this specific kind of razor on your legs because then you'll be beautiful and your life will be complete and it's like no If if I look more attractive, I'm going to be so busy fucking that I'm never going to clean this stove. (laughs) I'm going to be impregnated by all that sacred sperm and then I won't be able to keep my babies because I can't afford them. Yeah. Anyway. Should we move on to the autumn years? Yes, because this is my favorite part of the movie. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) So first off, we have the penis song. Doesn't it all be nice to have a penis? Isn't it frightfully good to have a dong? It's swell to have a stiffy, it's divine to own a dick. From the tiniest little tadger to the world's biggest prick. <laughs> oh my god. Tell your story. 
so we've both talked about how our parents showed us Monsieur. Uh, I, I always want to call him Monsieur because, because John Cleese is French. Mr. Creosote. You know, my parents rented us Meaning of Life, but they never had the intention of showing us the entire thing because they didn't really remember all that was in it. But they felt that we were a bit young. But they were going to make an exception for a sketch about a man who eats so much that he literally explodes. And we've rented on VHS and we find the sketch and we hit play and it opens with Eric Idle singing the Isn't It Rather Nice to Have a Penis? But that was all he said. He said, oh, isn't it rather nice to have a penis? And my mother goes, oh my God, oh my God. Like we had to fast forward through a song about a penis because that was going to scar us for life. But... Let's fast forward to the man exploding and the heart beating in his chest. But it's it's so funny, though, because and this this is where I got really emotional when I was watching the movie, because, you know, not only was I thinking about my childhood and my family and I love them and those days are never going to those days are gone of, of them introducing us to these things. Those days are past us. We're, we're grownups and yeah. I'm looking back on that now and it's, and it's a memory and that's bringing a tear to my eye just, just saying this. Yeah. So that's happening. And I'm, I'm just thinking about how we were children and we would beg to watch this over and over again, which is disgusting. <laughs> All same. But it's kind of funny. It's like my mother was protecting me from the song about the penis because it was nasty, but she didn't realize that by showing me Mr. Creosote, I was being just irreparably changed that became my humor i like fucked up things and i was having this emotional moment because i feel like as an adult people ask you oh what's your favorite movie and why and i always like to point to oh i saw train spotting when i was 15 and it changed my life and oh i saw you know i got really into john waters when i was in college and it changed my life and i was just realizing I feel like creative people maybe give too much importance to what they saw during certain key moments in their teenhood and early adulthood, but it's like, we can't ignore the things that absolutely undeniably shaped us from when we were kids. And for me, that's like Ren and Stimpy and plenty of, you know, other Nickelodeon stuff. Mm -hmm. But also I have this epiphany. I'm like, it's, it's also so much due to Flying Circus because, because of Flying Circus, I was then able to watch, you know, Pink Flamingos and go, I get it. And being introduced to British comedy and Faulty Towers, you know, I'm drawn to that now. And I'm sitting having this conversation with with you because we're friends, because we bonded over all of this. And also, I just want to add that, you know, in that documentary, they all are, you know, deferential to John Cleese. And they say, I think that when people think of Flying Circus, they think of John Cleese at the center of it. And I asked myself if that was true for me. And... For me, he's always Faulty Towers. More so, I love him more as Basil than in anything else. When I think of Flying Circus all my life, I've always thought of Terry Jones because I always see him as Bedivere and Mr. Creosote and I see him as as a woman with a shrieky voice. And someone referred to him in that documentary as the bowels of of Python or the guts, which can seem a little gross, (laughs) but it's like, no, I, I agree with that. And I was just having this, 
I mean, I've said a lot of things about Terry Jones and how I think he's so cute as as a young dude. And I've, you know, developed this raging crush on him as, as a young dude, <laughs> as a young dude. And so I'm having this epiphany about how Terry Jones has been this huge influence on me without me even realizing it. And mm. then I remembered something that we haven't mentioned yet, which is that the poor guy has dementia and he can hardly talk anymore. And oh, it so really brought a tear to my eye and it... It just made me think, you know, what is it all about? What is the meaning of all of this? If you can have this incredible life and career and get to do what you love and achieve like worldwide acclaim and express yourself and do whatever the fuck you want. And then in the end, this horrible thing is just going to happen to you and render you incapable of doing what you're so good at doing, which is communicating. And I fucking fell apart, dude. Yeah. I mean, talk about, I mean, you've got to take the bad with the good. I know all that, but life is a piece of shit when you look at it. It really is. And, you know, that is that is really sad, obviously, about Terry Jones. And it's also sad, you know, that, that we lost Graham Chapman so young. I say we, but I was three when it happened. So, you know, it's not as if I grieved him in real time. But even so, it still feels like a huge loss to me. Because, you know, who knows what else he could have gone on to do if he'd had more time. But... Yeah, it's really tragic. You know, everybody everybody falls apart in the end somehow. And the idea of losing your mind before your body is another nightmare. Oh, yeah. That's it, just really sad. And yeah, the fact that someone who's so quick and verbally dexterous could lose that, it's, it's just deeply ironic and heart-shattering. But, you know, on, on the other hand, what a fucking legacy to leave behind. He got so many decades where he could churn out such brilliant work. And, you know, and all of these men, they they get to, this is, you know, when we're talking about people like, you know, Dustin Hoffman, Louis C.K., I think that the the notion of of separating the man from the artist is bullshit when that person has committed horrible crimes against people. I don't forgive that. But if we're talking about, like, the, the personal tragedies that they suffer, I think that you know, when we think of Terry Jones, you know, decades from now, when when all of these men have passed on, we're going to remember the the joy that they spread. Fuck, I'm going to start crying and we're only like two thirds through the movie. The laughs and the happiness that these men were able to spread throughout the whole world and for over multiple generations. And I know that we've said that if we have kids, if we're lucky, then we will continue that, obviously. And so will they. It just, ugh, but but yeah, it's... It sucks. It just really helped me start thinking about the movie. The movie's ostensibly it's about the meaning of life and some of the sketches attempt <laughs> to actually be about that. And yeah. But you can tell that maybe it's a little bit of an afterthought in, in some of them. But it was after Eric Idle's song that I just kind of looked at it and I, you know, I'm thinking about Terry Jones's present day and I'm thinking about all he's done. And I'm thinking about you know, these these influences that have kind of really shaped my life and how things sneak up on you. And I'm just, you know, I'm getting emotional thinking about how this is our last Monty Python episode again. And just this. Oh, this, I know. I'm not I'm not ready to leave these guys behind. And, you know, of course, they all went on to do other things that we should totally watch yeah. and talk about. But yeah, I just felt like saying that now instead of saving it for the very end, because it is a bummer thing to kind of bring up. So, yeah. And and there is something so uniquely special about these six men working together. And it is, you know, I'm sure that we'll talk about this later, but it is really sad that this is the last thing that they that they got to do before Graham died and, and any other reunions that they've had since then. It's been incomplete. And um, 
Yeah, you know, they, they've all gone on to do other individual projects and had very successful lives. And of course, like, the thing that you said about, oh, like John Cleese, he's the most famous and I think has had the most success outside of the context of Python. But I don't think of him first when I think of Monty Python. I think it's absolutely a group effort. And in every single one of these movies, they all get their moment to really, really shine. Yeah. It's it's truly an ensemble. There aren't any weak links. It's not like, oh, we were carrying this person or this one was the real star and everyone else was riding his coattails. No, it's, you know, I, I love Faulty Towers. And A Fish Called Wanda was, I think, my favorite movie when I was in seventh grade. I've, I love a lot of the things that John Cleese has done outside of this, but... But he's at his best here. Like, everyone's at their best here. It's it's what I've said before about <laughs> about how, like, Fred Astaire was best with Ginger Rogers. And, uh, you know, as wonderful as everything else, like, there's, there's something so perfect about these things that they did together during these, what, 15 years of collaboration. It's absolutely magical. And, and I think that part of them knew and still knows that that is the most special thing that they're going to leave behind. I mean, apart from their personal lives and children, whatever, but, but creatively, that is the thing that I think will leave the greatest mark on the world. And they should be damn proud of it. They should. They should. So, so back to Mr. Creosote. Mr. Creosote! <laughs> Since this is your favorite scene, I'll let you do the honors first. Oh my God. Well, okay. I mean, first of all, I mean, it's it's disgusting. It's the most disgusting thing. I, I had kind of forgotten a little bit about all of the vomit. I remembered that oh, he was true going gross to out humor. eat everything and explode, but he comes in and the first thing he says is, better get a bucket, I'm going to throw up. <laughs> and I, I love how seriously John Cleese, as the waiter, is taking all of it. He never gets oh my God. like visibly grossed out so, or, or anything so he's playing it very straight with his oh my stupid God. french accent my, and oh this sauce is very rich That's my a, favorite yeah. my favorite line the thing that made me laugh the hardest was oh dear i have trodden in monsieur's bucket in monsieur's bucket yeah <laughs> just so straight so good they get him a bucket <laughs> and he just keeps leaning over and the vomit's just spraying out of him and i you know, the other night watching it alone in my apartment, I fell apart every time he barfed, which is so stupid and simple and like insulting, oh, yeah. vastly insulting. And yeah. they, they, you know, he they name everything that he's going to order. That's how I learned what the lot meant. I'll have the lot. My, my dad had to explain mm -hmm. to me that Stephanie, that means he's going to order everything. And and I, <laughs> I, you know, don't skimp on the pate is something that my family still says. And he's, he's oh, going to have it. My family, it's, it is only waffer thin. Oh, us That's too. Our... Everything's waffer <laughs> yes, so thin. Yes. Oh, God. And, and he barfs on the cleaning lady. And Carol Cleveland's moment about, I'm having a very oh, heavy yes. period. <laughs> Oh, yeah. She's not very prominently featured in this, but she is wonderful with what little she has to do here. Yeah. I hate to and start so bleeding mean. all over the seat. Over the that's, seat. that's the oh. most American she sounds to me. Oh, well, you had you haven't seen her cut scene where she's like a sassy waitress. Oh, no. You should, you should watch that. It's pretty I, fun. I have but, not. Um, but yeah, I, I've trodden in, yeah, in this oh my God. bucket. This, this scene, you know, I liked it as a kid. It also made me very uncomfortable. And it, it honestly, it always made me sad, too. And it still kind of does. I think you've said that you've been accused of being like a, you know, millennial bleeding heart liberal who's too sensitive to live her life. I'm definitely too sensitive to live my life because I feel bad for Mr. Creosote. I saw the movie Carrie when I was nine and I cried because I felt bad for Carrie and all of her victims. Like... That's that's not how you're supposed to feel. It's supposed to be a horror movie, but like I just have too much pathos for fictional characters, I think. And you know, and there are people like that who are 
that size and it's and it you know and it is like insensitive and politically incorrect to don a fat suit and i don't think that that could ever get made today without a crazy online furor however if you take the symbolic view then it becomes a stroke of genius because mm-hmm. it is kind of like with the very big corporation of america it is everything that is wrong with the world it is rampant consumerism and always needing more 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 and leaving a huge mess in our wake not caring about the consequences of our actions just just acting on impulse and id he's rude he's disgusting he's vomiting on the cleaning staff as she is cleaning up his fucking mess and then i wrote down the note dude mr creosote is our president and again i hate that everything comes back to trump but who could possibly be a better fictional example of not just our horrible consumeristic unsustainable way of life and the catastrophic effects of our lifestyle and our society and our you know american way <laughs> not that it's unique to america but like but that's Trump is fucking Mr. Creosote. You're like, freaking me out. That's hilarious. It's it's completely that that just made me go like, holy shit, because I've I've made a lot of connections to him in the past because, you know, because when something is bothering you on the level that this has been bothering me and most Americans for the last, what, two years? Christ. Two hundred um, years is to, kind uh, of more who, what it who feels can like. keep track at this point. Yeah. But anyway, Obviously, you're going to see it in every... It's like a montage in a movie where, like, oh, you see the thing that you're thinking of everywhere. But this felt like the most apt one. Like, a third of Americans fucking wanted Mr. Creosote to be the president. Dude, I would rather it be Mr. Creosote. I would hand him the wafer myself. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Okay, so then there's there's the mint, the part where he explodes. Mr. Creosote does appear to survive the explosion. Yeah. It's a lot less upsetting than if he were laying there dead. I don't know. I think there's something more upsetting about the look of horror on his face as he looks at his rib cage and his own beating heart i don't know it sort of makes me think of like would i want to survive an apocalyptic scenario i know there are a lot of people out there who really get off on the idea of surviving an apocalypse or a zombie apocalypse and like what would be your method of of hiding or fighting or what would you bring to the group i'm like if the world fucking ends take me with it eat me first i don't want to have to deal with that shit and so yeah the the idea that he's like a metaphor for our unsustainable way of life and how it's we're all heading for disaster by continuing to consume so much so mind but you know like life does find a way there we're you know with global warming threatening to destroy life it's really only we're we're fucking ourselves like humans are not gonna i think survive the next couple centuries but there will be other life forms that will We're, we're gonna take down a whole bunch of other endangered species with us in that time which is fucking horrible but life will go on in whatever weird way it is able to i kind of can't help but think of what you said earlier about how it says a lot about what kind of person you are based on which meaning of life segment is your favorite because during yours i thought about child abuse and i was too sensitive because of that and during mine you thought about fat shaming and you're too sensitive because of that and yeah i like that i like that we both uh thought of different completely different things that the sketches were not really doing because i do believe that mr creosote's a bit of a metaphor because absolutely he has to be otherwise it's just mean i love mr creosote i don't know i know you do and i love (laughs) sex in front of schoolboys. there you go (laughs) i also love the sketch anyway (laughs) so so then we have the meaning of life part 6b the meaning of life and you have terry jones returning as the cleaning woman who is cleaning up all of Mr. Creosote's vomit. Yeah, we, you know, we're in the restaurant a lot, are we? That's where the fish are. Oh, yeah. We do kind of keep circling back to it. And this is, this is the restaurant just freshly exploded upon. And we have John Cleese getting sort of philosophical and asking, oh, what is the point, blah, blah. And then we have Terry the cleaning woman 
give. I never noticed that his monologue rhymed until I watched it this week. I didn't notice that at all. Okay, it's kind of Shakespearean in the way that if you watch an actor who's really good at reading rhyming couplets in a way that just sounds like natural speech, you don't always hear it. But this time, yeah, if you go back and, and listen to that monologue, you can hear that it's all rhymed couplets. Oh my goodness. See, this is where I do see the don't because he instantly gets his comeuppance. He gets the, the bucket of vomit dumped over his head. John Cleese is very overly apologetic. Oh, I'm so sorry. I did not know that we had a racist working for us. It's, it's fantastic. And also, it just, it does make me think of how some people are so small and so petty that they do think that other groups of people that they may never have even encountered or met are responsible for their suffering and are deserving of their hate. You know, I was thinking, like, how how can you have so little perspective that you're threatened by Jews? Like, we're not we're not coming for you. We're not doing anything. And, and that's true of any of any scapegoat group. There's just nothing. Just wanting to live your own life with dignity and to, to worship how you please or to, you know, live in the skin you're in without fear of being shot down like a dog in the street. Um, these are perfectly reasonable wishes. And it's just, I can't imagine, like, what is your life like that you think it's important to harass and intimidate and perpetrate violence against people based on such random, I, I, I don't know. Like, what, what are these people's lives actually like? You know what I'm saying? Like, when I think about what I want for my life, I want meaningful relationships with people. I want to do work that I think is good and is going to improve. Like, I just, I don't think about other groups of people in terms of what threats they pose. I don't get angry, like, oh, thinking about the Chinese. Like, what, what, get, get a fucking life. I well, don't know. Well, I think we both get angry thinking about cis white dudes. They're I, a group well, of people. Yes, okay. So, but, but I don't, but I'm saying I'm not gonna take some fucking Home Depot tiki torches and march in the streets. Maybe I should. Maybe that would get me some attention. Dude, I'm, I, but, I don't know. I might, I might be, uh, I might be just a couple more assault scandals away from doing it. Moving on. So, yes. so then we have Gaston lead us out of the restaurant to his birthplace and deliver his, his philosophy, which, as I mentioned before, this was originally supposed to be the end of the movie which I think would have been an interesting ending point. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I would have liked that. I I think it could have worked if some other stuff came before it, but then how do you have death before the autumn years? You don't. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a question. Again, this is me losing sight of the big picture and getting bogged down by trivia, as we are so often wont to do as foolish mortals. But is this restaurant in France or is it in England? Because it seems like all of the patrons are English, but the waitstaff is French, and this guy is clearly French, and he is walking distance from the place of his birth. So, <laughs> is this just a, a very, like, English-friendly tourist trap in France? Or is is he just a random Frenchman who was, like, maybe born to French parents who never taught him to speak with an English accent? My answer is... In a movie where people can show up to take your liver one second and the next second you're in space. <laughs> I realize that my question is dumb. I mean, no, it's interesting that, that your mind went there. But here's the thing. When he leaves the restaurant, isn't he kind of very clearly in London? Doesn't that look like London? Yeah. So Unless he walks to France. <laughs> just, yeah. Unless he walks to France. Yeah. I don't know. No, it definitely. I mean, it was the shot. It was obviously shot in London. This, this, this movie was shot in the UK. Uh, right. I don't know. But I'm anyway. just saying they didn't disguise it. No, they didn't. Yeah, it's weird. Anyway, that's my anyway. dumb little nitpicky genius at work question that has no bearing on the rest of the film. 
then we arrive at the final part, part seven, death. I liked this a lot more than I remembered when I saw it a couple years ago, because I, I feel like I now have a better understanding of these people. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. The people having the dinner party. Oh, there's a few things that happened before that, though. Oh, okay. First, well, there's the, take the, lead, uh, then. the bouncing boobies and being run off a cliff. Oh, yeah, Arthur Jarrett's execution. Yes. I have nothing. I. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember being kind of rightly fascinated by this as a little girl. Um, but yeah, not, not my favorite segment. Well, no, not mine. And then we have the last bit of animation that we're going to see is the leaf animation. Oh, this was a good one. I really liked this it. This is great. Yeah, I loved it. And, and this is what makes me think that I wish that there were more little bits of animation throughout the rest of the film. Uh, I mean, I don't I don't know how they would have done that, but it, it's so lovely. And it reminds me of a book that I had when I was a kid. It was called Freddy the Leaf, and it was about a leaf who died. And yeah. it made me cry. And I haven't read it since I was, I don't know, seven. But... Uh, I would I would probably cry if I read it now. <laughs> oh, Tom Waits has a great song. I'm the last leaf on the tree. And he's just singing mm. from the perspective of a leaf. But yeah, yeah, that the voice just saying I'm gonna end it all, and then the leaf falling, and then and then his wife follows, and the kids follow, and it's a very also just a really beautiful cartoon of of this really autumn is. tree. You know, it just reminds me like we're all connected. Every single person has a whole world of people surrounding them and we all you know it's the it's the whole ripple effect like when one person dies that tragedy will spread out branch out no pun intended because we're talking about trees to everybody in their circle and then it's uh yeah there there is a crazy effect like i don't know i i i had a grander thought than what came out of my mouth just now but it just seemed like a really lovely and tragic way of, of pointing out how we all affect one another's lives more than we know well and i'm thinking about carmela soprano again i know we brought that up when we oh, talked yeah. about the finale of blackadder but you yeah, know yeah. all those leaves are gonna fall and new ones are gonna grow and it's exactly what happens to humans is just a lot quicker yeah no it's, it's very true Everything and then we come to the grim away. reaper interrupting the dinner party which is okay really funny that i that i love because i i know these dorky there's a lot of dorky americans in this movie yeah you know i don't feel like any of them really nail the accent they all have lines where they're pretty good at it but i don't know if anyone's consistently good at it but there's something funny about the sort of over the top accent like it's not so terrible it's not like waldorf salad bad it's just like i'm making a point by exaggerating in the same way as like John Cleese's French accent isn't meant to be a realistic French accent. It's, oh, sacre bleu, I am being very over the top, and you can tell that I am French. Like, it's the same thing with the Americans. Yeah. So I think it's great. I love how they carry on so casually once the Grim Reaper shows up at their doorstep. It's just business as usual. Like we all do, treating death as something sort of distant and theoretical instead of a very real thing that will happen to us all. It's so perfect for the way that we do go about our lives worrying about these mundane little matters that don't really mean anything as if we're not going to die and even when their stupid dinner party is literally interrupted by the grim reaper they're still sort of skeptical is maybe the wrong well yeah they are skeptical in the face of it and they don't really believe that it's happening there's such a strong element of denial that i think is maybe necessary for us to survive and not just be depressed all the time oh but yeah it's hilarious oh yeah well and then is it michael palin who asks how did we all die at the same time And it was the salmon moose and yes. it was you know you didn't use canned salmon did yes. you 
I'm, I'm most, most dreadfully, dreadfully embarrassed. embarrassed. It's so funny because they yeah. they do have a good go at the Americans, but also at the British. Like, you English are so pompous. You haven't got any balls. It's yeah. really funny. But, oh, my God. Even before that, though, we have Terry Gilliam is the obnoxious American who mansplains death to death. Which is not just, I mean, they, they say that it's, oh, you Americans, you never shut up. You're always talking, blah, blah, blah. But like, I, I'm here to set the record straight, guys. It's not an American thing. It's a dude thing. It may also be an American thing and specifically an American dude thing. But it's, it's just hilarious to me that this guy thinks that he knows more about death than the Grim Reaper. That's just, it, it's so, I know that they weren't, you know, going for mansplaining is, is what they were going, but that they tapped into something very, very real, y'all. Yeah. Well, you know, they weren't going to have the Grim Reaper in this movie say, you men, even though that would have been delightful. Well, no, of course. I'm just saying that, uh, you know, it's it's there for us to all see and appreciate. Did you notice that when they all leave with the Grim Reaper and like their souls leave their bodies and their bodies fall onto the table, but the little holograms of their souls leave, they get in their cars and the cars have souls too? Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Was, and uh, funny. the other line besides I'm most dreadfully embarrassed that makes me laugh the most is I didn't eat this moose. Yeah. <laughs> Which actually I learned was improvised. Most Python stuff is not improvised. I feel like every performer of any sort of comedy is always asked, oh, how much was improvised? And that's something that as a writer always pisses me off is like, oh, the idea that, you know, that the script is just a guideline and the real work happens in the performing and anything that is funny must automatically be a spur of the moment thing but obviously these guys are such brilliant writers and so meticulous and they would labor over the rhythm and the phrasing of their comedy to make it have the maximum effect so most stuff is very tightly scripted I mean except for with the live shows they might kind of go off book a little bit because these are sketches that everybody's familiar with and it's fun to surprise them but uh, I didn't eat the moose is like one of the only bits of, of canonical python dialogue that was actually improvised so very good good on you Mikey so then they check into heaven. But heaven looks an awful lot like the lobby of the Hawaiian restaurant, does it not? It does. Okay. Yeah. So this isn't a biggest dick situation. No, no. I am correct in pointing out that they look alike. Yeah, and... no, it's the it's the super in. Is it isn't it the same set? I could be wrong. It's, it I looks just like it. I should fucking know. Yeah. And then we have like a little reunion of all of the characters that we saw earlier. It's a nice little conclusion because we see we see the children who died from the medical experiments. We see mm. the the guys who got sliced into little bits in the in the Zulu war. We see uh, Mr. Creosote, obviously. Why I don't know why the topless girls are there because they shouldn't have died. It was the guy that they were chasing. But hey, any excuse to have boobies in a scene, right? There anyway. you go. But, but, you know, we're very obviously in for the conclusion of this. And then we have Christmas in Heaven, which is such a wonderful number. A lot of boobs there, too. I'm glad that they're fake, though. They are. <laughs> and, but uh, yeah. I kind of wish that the topless girls who, you know, ran Graham Chapman off the cliff kind of weren't there. Not just because I've already had to see them naked in thongs, but, but because I feel like then the impact of the women dancing with their boobs out kind of diminishes the comedy because mm -hmm. I can see how that is a joke right. because it's heaven. So, of course, because it's heaven, there's going to be women, you know, completely clothed except their tits are out. So, I don't know. I kind of feel like having seen yeah. way more naked girls right before that, again, diminishes that joke a little bit. Yeah, I get that. It did, it did sort of take me out of it, but I did love this number so much as a kid. And I have to just say the first thing that made me just crack up was Graham Chapman's hair, skin, and teeth. 
He looks so fucking funny. I'd like to sing a number for all of you. And this is another perfect, terrible American accent. It's so funny. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the first of all, oh, I wanted to say I thought of you because they screened Jaws 1, 2, and 3. So Jaws 3 is playing in heaven. I thought of that too, dude. (laughs) I thought of that too. I wonder if they're playing Weekend at Bernie's as well. Sorry, it probably it hadn't come out at this point, but I'm sure that they've they've added it to the to the lineup in heaven since then. They better have. It's a great movie, but it's such a good number. I mean, it's uh, it's so evocative of Busby Berkeley. Have you seen a Busby Berkeley movie, Steph? Nope. You're missing out, man. Okay, but have you seen a number even? I don't know. It's a very common visual reference that I'm sure we've all seen alluded to. He's most famous for like aerial shots of a bunch of chorus girls doing these sort of like kaleidoscopic symmetrical patterns. But Busby Berkeley would direct and choreograph these movies for Warner Brothers in the 30s. And they were all of the musical numbers were supposed to take place on stage. And what was so crazy and so trippy about them, he was also like a famous alcoholic. So like this was probably <laughs> the, the drink influencing this, his creative decisions. But there would be these like seven to eight minute long musical numbers that were like complete mind fucks because the reason that I thought of this here, uh, in addition to just the, the grandness and the production value of this, but there's that wonderful shot that I'm sure was very difficult to pull off where it pans to the television and then it goes into that television. That's the new shot. And then it shows there's another television within it with the manger scene. And then that becomes the shot. It's like these numbers that were supposedly taking place on stage in the world of the movie they would have these crazy like there would be a billion different locations that would never possibly fit in even the largest new york theater or it would like pan over to a tiny little photograph of a woman and then the photograph would come to life and start dancing and it's like this is not this wouldn't happen on stage it's so weird but i guess because it's heaven it makes more sense anyway it's just (laughs) it's a really really fun one yeah and then do we have the TV before or after the end of the film? It's after. So Okay. Yeah. So first we have the end of the film where Michael Palin in drag gets the envelope. Thank you, Brigitte. And, and reads the meaning of life, which is... Well, it's nothing very special. But try and be nice to people. Avoid eating fat. Read a good book every now and then. Get some walking in. And try and live together in peace and harmony with people of all creeds and nations. Just some very obvious things that we all need to be constantly reminded of. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Isn't that funny? Why... What other explanation do we need? There are people who believe that they've read it all in a book and are going to follow the teachings of the book. And I'm not even just talking about Christians. I'm talking about every, you know, major world religion. Mm -hmm. And then there are people who don't subscribe to any of that like you and me. And um, I kind of feel like I have a good handle on what makes me happy. I have a good handle on how it feels better to treat other people with kindness than to treat them with anything mm-hmm. less than that. I wish I didn't have to work and shit, but I guess I I do, and there's not much I can do about that. But yeah, I kind of wonder, what, what meaning are we really searching for beyond that? Is it why are we here? I don't know. What other meaning are we really searching for, do you think? Well, there's, there's two ways of looking at why. Or like when you think about when somebody says something like everything happens for a reason. I feel like that's a very hokey and stupid thing to say because the implication is usually that the reason is in the future and that it's all part of some, you know, higher being's grand plan. But really, everything does happen for a reason. I just think that the reason is in the past. And this is assuming like a, a linear theory of time. Right. I'm not going to get into that. But, but yeah, we're here because, you know... 
in my view, the Big Bang happened, and then a lot of evolution happened, and then this, this is just what what is happening. There's no alternate universe where there's something else happening. It's just this, this is, we're here because we're here. It doesn't really matter. But then if you think about why are we here, we must be here for some sort of purpose. Like, what's the real reason? What's the real meaning behind it? And, um, you know, like I said before, I think that there isn't any meaning except for the ones that we create for ourselves. You have to... yeah. You have to write your own blueprint. Yeah. I kind of feel like when it comes to believing in evolution and science and that there isn't necessarily anything after this, mm -hmm. that's just a much more humble way to look at things is to go, gee, I don't know when this is really overwhelming and there's so much more to it than I can simply understand. And to say that God created everything, it's like, well, even if that's true, I don't think there's anything really simple about that either. Yeah. I think that when it comes to creation stories uh, it's like why do we feel like that was easy and that, that and that is a perfectly logical easy explanation because then i just think of like a wizard i think of a wizard with a wand just going zebras trees <laughs> it's like no there's amoebas and there's disease and there's physics and there's wind it's like how do you come up with all of that that's not simple either I don't know. I just kind of feel like the question of what's the meaning of it all no matter what your personal answer is it's like yeah, there's a lot to think about. Also kind of not. I don't know. We're yeah. stuck here. It's not a dream. We're stuck with it. Right. Yeah. Just just make the most of it and don't concern yourself too much with the questions that are too big or that are too small. I think there's like a good middle view to, to take. Yeah. And and so then we have, you know, the, the reprise of the galaxy song here, which I think is a perfect note to end on. But that TV dude floating away with the flowers growing. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, that. that TV flying away and you see the opening animation of Flying Circus and you just kind of go, <gasps> as it flies into, into the stars. Yeah. It's really beautiful. It's beautiful and it's so touching. And it, you know, we had talked about how this is in many ways their most Flying Circus-esque film. And it's kind of a lovely little, like, cycle, like, of, of almost reincarnation. Like, they've gone, they've, they've made this full circle, and they've gone back to the beginning. And like we said, we're sad to be leaving this behind, because this is the conclusion of our Monty Python season. But, like, we can always go back and start it again from the beginning. This, this work is still there for people to enjoy long after its creators have gone on to other realms, or not. Uh... Yeah. yeah, it's it's a really sweet and beautiful image. One of my favorite lines in the song is how amazingly unlikely is your birth. Yes. And I think about this a lot, and I think that it perfectly applies here. You know, sometimes if I'm, you know, w whether I'm happy or sad and I'm enjoying a piece of art that I love, and I say piece of art, I mean movie, TV, show, song, um, That's art, group, yeah. bit, bit of stand-up comedy, you know, mm -hmm. I think like, wow, you know, I don't know what's going to be happening 500 years from now. Clearly, I'm not enjoying whatever was entertaining 500 years ago. It is so cool that I am alive right now and I get to watch fill in the blank, you know. And that that line, how amazingly yeah. unlikely is your birth? It's like that, how amazingly unlikely is Monty Python or any other, you know, oh, yeah. comedy group that comes together or filmmakers yeah. that, you know, are, are born. And the incredible things that have to happen sequentially in your life to bring you to where you end up. Yeah, and yeah. I was having that moment of how how lucky am I? How amazingly unlikely was all of this? And Absolutely. it's easy to, to take that for granted. And you need to find the balance there, too. It's like 
maybe I'm in a frame of mind at this moment where thinking about all of this just makes me cry and I'm going to get as, as emotional as I want. But if I were to do that in the day to day, I'd be a little bit insane. <laughs> but 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 it's, it's, it's important it's to not just take absolutely everything you love for granted, whether it's the people around you in your real life or the bizarre shit that you've loved since you were a little kid that has shaped absolutely. you into the incredibly unique and obscure fucking person that you are and it was oh, yeah. so powerful to me to see oh god i really appreciate your pointing that out about how unlikely it was and how unlikely it was that these six men should come together and the the i don't want to call it a fluke because it's certainly earned on the strength of the material but the python phenomenon so many things could have easily gone wrong so many things could have made it never happen but the fact that these six people came together at the right time they were given the license to do 13 episodes of a show without having any idea what it was going to be about and then that it took off and that they were able to you know salvage their tapes from the bbc before they were wiped and that it was able to become a thing in america what's so magical about python is something that i've been thinking about a lot over the last couple of months as i've been rediscovering their work is that it, th i think that this is very unusual when you think about things that are widely popular they're I don't want to say that they're not good, but they're sort of like inoffensive or lowest common denominator or vanilla. They, they have a sort of bland appeal. Like if you think about pop music and don't get me wrong, I love pop music, but the lyrics aren't very specific. It's all kind of the same thing. It's just what is going to have the, the widest appeal and you don't really get like none of my you know absolute favorite songs are going to be like the top 40. But Python, it just it contains everything it's it's disgusting and and vile and offensive and it's also silly and whimsical and childish and it's brilliant and cutting and political and insightful and it's intellectual and sophisticated and clever and and irreverent and zany and wonderful and hilarious like gut-bustingly funny and and kind of sexy and cheeky it contains multitudes and i'm so happy for them and for all of us that it got to be the level of popular that it is because it is so bizarre and so specific and i'm i'm almost shocked that it is i mean i'm not shocked because it's good but i'm also shocked whenever anything that is that good and that uniquely itself reaches mass appeal and i'm i'm so glad that that it is something that still speaks to people you know 30 to 50 years later oh yeah and you know i think that that is just um the very big corporation of America influencing us to assume the worst in people because in that in that documentary they're talking about uh, how can we possibly bring this to America and this and that and then it just is wildly popular and beloved yeah I feel like this just kind of keeps happening whether it's about um diversity in film oh crazy rich Asians had a massive opening who knew that there were um, Asian Americans out there who would want to see it oh and other people went yeah. this is this is incredible no, you know it, it's like we're not given enough credit I think that we're absolutely yeah. starved for something that is that oh, yeah. is different and and unique and the, the Marvel shit is going to continue to make a killing but yeah I feel like when stuff comes along that is different it does kind of surprise us all in in kind of making us all laugh about bizarre shit like Napoleon Dynamite comes to mind for sure <laughs> and um so yeah I'm I'm really really glad that they they took a gamble on it because because wow, uh, they're on PBS alongside all of the <laughs> all of the period pieces that were being aired over here. They had a little slice yeah. of 
something fucking weird, man. Yeah. No, I, I do think that you're right, that we do tend to underestimate the intelligence of the public and, and whether people will get things. Uh, but, but you know, the flip side of that is let's not forget that millions of Americans voted for Mr. Creosote to be our president. I was just going to say the same thing. But, yeah. you know, o- opens but New York and L.A. this September. It's going to be huge. You know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, it's been such an honor and a privilege to get to rewatch all of this stuff. You know, this was sort of a challenging sophomore season for us to attempt. It was, I think we, we were pretty ambitious in wanting to, to divide it up when we were used to only doing one show per episode. But with something as, as massive and influential and dense as Python, I think that in order to give it its due, we had to give it its own full season. And, uh, and yeah, I hope that we've helped to remind people that if they haven't seen it in a while, they need to check it out again because it's it's wonderful. Absolutely. Oh, man. Just bless them all. Bless yes. you, Carol Cleveland. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Well, God, I don't want... No, I don't want to end the conversation because then the fucking... Oh, God. This really snuck up on me, Kaylee, with how much I wouldn't want this to end. Oh, no, I know. But you know what? I, I think that it's interesting that... In our first season, each episode sort of paralleled the the style or the tone of the show that we were talking about. Like Faulty Towers was a little bit more like classy and buttoned up, and then like the Young Ones was completely insane. Father Ted got really political. Blackadder we ended up crying. Abfab was very like feminist, and you know a lot of Monty Python things just kind of abruptly stop 